welcome to Alco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Alco Farm, ETSU's Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. Pharmacy, it's February 2nd, 2023. My, how time just goes forward. Uh, a lot of uh, FDA updates and notable FDA updates uh, to talk about. Two new drug approval and one in expanded indication approval. And we'll start with that, which was uh, on January 26th, the FDA approved um, pembrolizumab in the adjuvant setting for non-small cell lung cancer. We have uh, two other approvals for adjuvant non-small cell lung cancer that are targeted. We have atezolizumab and we have OC mertinib. And OC is specific to EGFR mutated non-small cell lung cancer. So let's talk about Pembro's approval and then we'll put it in context, especially with atezolizumab. Um, so the, the adjuvant pembrolizumab for non-small cell lung cancer is, uh, of course, occurred immediately after recording last week's episode. Uh, so pembrolizumab approved for one year following resection of the lung cancer and platinum-based chemo for those with stage 1B, 2, or 3A disease. Uh, and this is based on the results of Keynote uh, 091. Couple things I want to point out right away: differences between a Pembro's adjuvant approval and a Tizolizumab's adjuvant approval for non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, Tizolizumab is approved for uh, adjuvant after surgery and platinum-based chemo for stage two to three, not one B, and they have to have PDL1 expression of one percent or greater. Uh, and if you look at the subgroup analysis, there's a pretty clear uh, trend of. Um, of less atezolizumab benefit in the adjuvant setting for non-small cell lung cancer if the pdl one expression is less than 1% compared to 1% to 49% versus greater than 50%. If you look in the subgroup analysis for the pembrolizumab study, uh, Keynote 91, uh, there is no apparent trend that pdl one expression makes a difference. And this might be a difference between a drug that blocks PD-1 in pembrolizumab and a drug that blocks PDL one in atezolizumab. So Keynote 91 was a large study, about 1,000 patients, similar in number to the atezolizumab study, which was in Power 010. Uh, so about 1,100 patients, 86 of them had received platinum-based treatment. 40% uh, or so were pdl one less than 1%, and they randomized one-to-one -to, -one to Pembro for a year or placebo. Uh, the um, primary endpoint is disease-free survival, so the amount of time the patient um, lives following surgery. There is no disease. It was all cut out that we think. Um, so time from randomization until uh, the disease recurs or the patient dies. So when you looked at um, disease-free survival for those that received adjuvant treatment, which was a, a pre-specified subgroup analysis, right? The hazard ratio was 0.73, favoring adjuvant Pembro with 95% uh, confidence from 0.6 to 0.89. Um, Median disease-free survival for those that got Pembro, 59 months versus 35 months. The curves are, are pretty much superimposed for about six months and then they separate and they stay separated uh, quite large. Now the disease-free survival point estimate for those who did not receive adjuvant chemo was actually 1.25. And I'm not sure how those who got placebo uh, on average had a better disease-free survival than those who got Pembro. That doesn't make sense. It's probably just noise uh, because it was, it was only a couple hundred patients. Um, so this benefit of adjuvant Pembro was seen regardless of PD-L1 expression, but only in those who received adjuvant chemo, which they should get adjuvant chemo. And this, you know, scientifically makes the most sense when immunotherapy would be most effective 
is not only have we cut the disease out, but we've killed a lot of areas of any micro-metastatic disease with pembrolizumab. The key thing is gonna be watching overall survival data um, and how that matures. Are we curing more people? Is the, the adjuvant pembro pre-treating other cancer? You know, the same smoking that caused the lung cancer also caused a lot of damage to other parts of the lung. We know many of these lung cancer patients have second primary malignancies, and are you pre-treating some of those and you're delaying a second primary? Um, and then those that do relapse um, or have disease recurrence, you're assuming they're getting chemo plus immune checkpoint inhibitor, those on the, the placebo group. So we see that the benefit um, approved by uh, the FDA will be added to the guidelines, um, I'm sure, in short order. Um, there did appear to be benefit to those with stage 1B, or maybe less than those with 2. Those with 3A, the benefit was the smallest for those folks, a harder-to-treat disease state. Uh, and with some of the, the data coming down the track about neoadjuvant uh, and chemo and immune checkpoint inhibitors, you wonder if we might see uh, a, a switch um, from for those with 3A disease of doing neoadjuvant chemo immune checkpoint inhibitor rather than an adjuvant-based approach. Now, in Power 01, um, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, the differences there. We do have uh, some overall survival data out at a meeting follow-up of 46 months for adjuvant atizolizumab versus best supportive care. Um, at 36 months, 82% uh, were alive in atizo versus 79% with best supportive care. Pretty close at three years. At 60 months, so at five years, you're seeing 77% alive who received adjuvantatizo versus only 68 with best supportive care. That's a delta of about 10%. Now you're assuming those people who recur in that five years, so they have access to immune checkpoint inhibitor. But it looks like we'll see an overall survival difference in that atizolizumab study if they have the remaining power uh, to look at that. Now the adjuvant uh, OC Mertinib study at our, there was actually just an update published uh, this week in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. As a reminder, um, these were folks with stage 2 or stage 3B non-small cell lung cancer uh, following surgery. Uh, I believe they could get chemo or not chemo. Um, and they're randomized to either uh, placebo or three years of OC Mertinib. It was one year of Pembro, one year of Atizo, but three years of OC Mertinib. Uh, we have four-year disease-free survival rates, 70% of people alive without their disease coming back. With OC Mertinib at four years, so a year off of OC Mertinib, 29% with placebo. And it took me a while to figure out the median follow-up for this was 44 months with OC Mertinib, but only 20 months with placebo. And so I was like, are these people like dropping out on placebo? They're probably recurring pretty quick, pretty quick. And probably a lot of these are stage 3B folks, not 3, but all the way to 3B folks who are, who are very high risk um, for, for disease recurrence. Or maybe it's just stage two to three. Um, uh, we're still waiting on the final overall survival analysis for at Aura. Um, it's been a while, and uh, this recent publication said that the OS analysis would occur when there was 20% maturity of overall survival, which tells me that more than 80% of people are still alive. These folks who get placebo um, in at Aura, who are EGFR positive, when they recur, they're going to do well on on an OC Mertinib or even an, uh, an Afatinib or Lotinib. We do pretty well at treating. These, these driver mutation uh, positive non-small cell lung cancer. So um, <clears throat> maybe a long time before we see that overall survival difference because you're going to have a really good you know, option at disease recurrence assuming everybody gets equal access to OC Mertinib in that placebo group. Okay, so that's kind of the current landscape of targeted therapy in the adjuvant setting for non-small cell lung cancer. 
more of more evolution to come, I would expect. Okay, on January 27th, uh, Elasistrant, or Elasistrant, E-L-A-C-E, Elase, S-T-R-A-N-T, Elasistrant was FDA approved <clears throat> by the FDA for HER2 uh, negative, uh, ER positive, ESR1 mutated metastatic breast cancer. ESR1 is estrogen receptor 1. Uh, for women who are postmenopausal, after at least one prior line of endocrine treatment, and this is based off the em the Emerald study. There's a phase three trial of almost 500 patients, uh, about half of whom had this ESR1 mutation and half who didn't, randomized to either elasistrant or physician's choice of endocrine therapy. About two thirds of those got fulvestrant and one third got an aromatase inhibitor. Uh, this approval, there was also a companion diagnostic test for a Gardent 360 CDX assay for ESR1. Uh, Progression-free survival was our primary endpoint here because these folks are metastatic. They have disease. Does that disease get worse or do they die? That's progression-free survival. Hazard ratio for all patients was 0.7. The progression-free survival point estimate hazard ratio only for those that were ESR1 positive was 0.55, and they determined from this that that is why the overall population has had a favorable positive or a favorable uh, progression-free survival hazard ratio because it was enriched with these half of the people who are ESR1 mutants. So that's the approval just for those that have this ESR1 mutation, which now we'll start to test for because this uh, appears to be a good option. Uh, you know, a hazard ratio of 0.55 is pretty good. Uh, the 95% composite layer was 0.39 to 0.77. I'm also going to give you uh, some more numbers, so wait for them. Progression-free survival at six months with elasistrant with 41% compared to 19% in the physician's choice. So that's a doubling of PFS at six months with uh, elasistrant. The 12-month PFS rates are 27% with elasistrant versus 8% with combination. So more than tripling progression-free survival. Okay. Now, we have lots of good options for these folks. They could go on and get a, um, uh, you know, a cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitor, etc. Uh, or chemotherapy, right? We have lots of options for hormone-positive metastatic breast cancer. So you want to see the overall survival. So the interim overall survival, uh, which was published uh, in JCO, six-month overall survival, and this is just for those who benefited, the ESR1 uh, mutation-positive folks. Uh, six-month overall survival, 93% versus 84%. It's a delta of about 9 um, 12 month overall survival of 83% versus 74%. In both cases, it's the same difference. So this benefit um, did not get bigger over time like it did for progressions free survival. It stayed the same for overall survival, but there's still a delta of nine. Now that p-value is 0.035, which was not significant because their alpha threshold uh, after alpha spending for overall survival is 0.0001. So way low. So elasistrant, uh, brand name is Orsurdu. Orserdu? Or se anyway, O-R-S-E-R-D-U. S-E-R-D, selective estrogen receptor down regulator. Very similar to fulvestrant. It rhymes with fulvestrant. Elasistrant, fulvestrant. So this binds to the estrogen receptor. Uh, and then uh, the way that estrogen would bind to the estrogen receptor is estrogen bind, estradiol binds to the ER. Then it translocates to the nucleus across the cytoplasm where it turns on the estrogen-dependent genes. Now, during this process of moving through the cytoplasm, the proteasome degrades this complex of elasistrant plus the, uh, the estrogen receptor, which is how it down-regulates um, uh, estrogen receptor expression, which then means estradiol can't stimulate the breast cancer cells to grow. 
Uh, I'm sure this would not be studied, but you would think if you put somebody with uh, taking a lecistrant and they had myeloma, if you put them on a proteasome inhibitor, that a lecistrant may not work because that that degradation of the estrogen receptor is via the proteasome pathway, according to the package insert. Some notable things about the drug, it's oral. The dose is 345 milligrams uh, daily with food. I'm not sure how important it is to take with food. It increases the Cmax quite a bit, but only t increases uh, exposure and area under the curve by 22%. Um, but the food that does that is a high-fat meal of 800 to 1,000 calories, and 50% of that is fat, which sounds delicious, but we, you know, do they know that obesity is a risk factor for, uh, you know, hormone-dependent breast cancer? That 1,000 calories in one meal, half of it fat, you'd have to take based on the PI with this. Uh, not sure how much that will be. The label just says with food, okay? Uh, toxicity profile seems to be almost exactly the same as fulvestrant. It is oral versus injection with fulvestrant. Um, but there is an additional warning and side effect you see with uh, strength that you don't see, or strength I don't see with fulvestrant, and that is uh, dyslipidemia. Uh, there were higher rates of uh, high cholesterol and high triglycerides with strength versus fulvestrant. Now, grade three and four, you know, serious hypercholesterolemia was 0.9% with strength, 2.2% triglycerides of grade three or four, um, so not real common, but something you monitor at baseline and periodically thereafter. It is a cytochrome P453 4 substrate, uh, so strong and even moderate 3 or 4 inhibitors. Uh, like uh, moderate would be like um, fluconazole doubled the exposure of, of elacistrant. Uh, same thing for 3 or 4 inducers should not be given with elacistrant. As pharmacists, are very familiar with that, uh, that uh, song and dance. All right, the last approval is pyrobrutinib, which used to be known as LOXO305. This is a Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitor, but it's not a, not a Me Too drug. It's different. Uh, brand name here is Jperka, which could be a guy's name, Jperka. Um, this is an accelerated approval for relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma after two lines of therapy, one of which including a Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitor. So this drug has activity after BTK therapy, all right? Uh, approvals based on Bruin, which is a study of 120 patients with mantle cell lymphoma, or we're including this analysis. Overall response rate was 50%, 13% complete responses. Um, the patients in the study had received a meeting of three lines of treatment. They all had received a, a, a BTK inhibitor. Two thirds had received a Brutinib, 30% received a Calibrutinib, 8% had received Zanubrutinib, and 83% of folks um, stopped BTK inhibitor due to uh, their disease being refractory or progression. This is not a case of we couldn't tolerate one of these early BTK inhibitors, so we had to use a different one. This truly is a drug that has activity in BTK resistance. It inhibits wild-type Bruton's tyrosine kinase as well as the C481S mutation. <clears throat> so that is at the 481 first codon where cysteine <clears throat> has been changed to serine. And that cysteine is really important because that is where a brutinib, a calibrutinib, and zinubrutinib covalently bind to the tyrosine kinase catalytic domain. So this drug has activity um, in BTK where the binding site literally is gone from the tyrosine kinase protein. So this is a non-covalent BTK inhibitor and because it does not bind to the same spot, it has activity 
uh, and a really common cause of resistance for, for BTK inhibitors is C481S mutation. Uh, there can be other mutations to BTK inhibitors that could confer resistance to pirabrutinib and other BTK inhibitors. There are downstream upregulations of things like uh, PLGC or PLCG2 that can confer resistance. So it's not like this drug is resistance proof. People can still develop resistance to pirabrutinib. There's a nice um, in-depth, very in-depth New England Journal of Medicine um, article uh, from, uh, from 2022 that, that describes that. But finally, for those patients, I remember one of the first patients I counseled on a brutinib um, for, uh, for a lymphoma was, what, what's the next question? What, what happens after this? Because at the time, I had already gone through a couple lines of treatment. What happens after this? And at the time, there were not any BTK inhibitors on the market that had activity for resistance to BTK, to drugs like a brutinib. Now we have that with pirabrutinib. Its approval is only for mantle cell lymphoma. I would have to assume that the studies, um, I feel confident without even looking up, the studies are being done in CLL as well, and we would see, uh, they may already be done and published, I'm just not aware of it because I'm in the dark over here uh, teaching a lot this semester. So that is what I have uh, for this week for Oncofarm. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at FarmDTNIP, and you can follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at Oncofarm Pod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. <laughs>